0: Welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, um, I love to be able to see people as we as we talk together. So some may have bandwidth issues, but if it works to have your video on, that's um, appreciated. So today I want to explore the cultivation of equanimity. Equanimity is one of the most uh, profound qualities that we can develop. It refers to keeping balance, non-reactivity in the midst of everything as much as possible. We might say keeping a center in the midst of everything, and of course, particularly challenging when things are difficult. And yet it can be uh, a, quite a confusing theme. You know, as we, we could see from uh, Maureen's really uh, important questions about equanimity, that it can be confusing. Is equanimity about um, just keeping neutral to everything? Is it about staying on the sidelines and keeping balance? And so, as we'll see, uh, developing equanimity runs up against certain uh, challenges and possible distortions, you know, but ultimately equanimity is about being fully engaged with life, with uh, challenges, with issues, with uh, the needs of the times, and keeping a center, right? So it means how do we stay balanced with uh, personal challenges, with You know, the immense number of uh, social challenges that are there now. How do we stay balanced? And again, I would say some of the most beloved humans who have ever lived particularly manifest a quality of equanimity. I want to give a few examples. So the first is I want to give the example from the last speech that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave. This was, some of you know, this was in Memphis um, on, I believe, May 3rd, 1968. And he was um, assassinated the day after this talk. And I think if you listen to this, you'll find a profound level of equanimity, which he had, you know, really in many ways throughout his life, even though that equanimity... Was developed by being able to respond to a lot of things which took him off center a little bit. So let's—I want to show a video of the last two and a half minutes of that speech right now, and, and tune in both for the the power um, of Dr. King in general, but also for the quality of equanimity. So let's let's uh, play that now, Heather. Heather, are you there? Okay.
1: Sorry, Donald. I had to mute for just a moment. (laughs) Hello. Sorry to keep you all waited. I'm here.
0: Okay. Did you hear my request?
1: Yes. Put it in the chat, right?
0: No, no. It was to play the video.
1: Oh, perfect. Here we go. One sec.
2: They have committed themselves to that over there, but somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for right.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Heather. So, a profound equanimity in the middle of deep responsiveness. A passage from the Buddha. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear on hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires. They're not preoccupied about pleasures and desires. It's from the uh, text, the Dhammapada. And then one other example. This is from um, someone who I've uh, never met but I've learned a lot from, named a Tibetan teacher who died in 1991 named Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. This is a picture of him. And there's a line by someone who knew him really well, uh, Shachin Rabjam, who said, "'What inspired me most in Kensei Rinpoche "'is the beauty of his inner freedom, "'no matter what happened around him.'" The inner freedom, no matter what happened around him. And, you know, in the life of Dogokense Rinpoche, born in 1910 in Eastern Tibet, became a great practitioner in the 1950s, so he would have been in his 40s. He twice had to leave his home because of uh, first the incursion and later the invasion by the Chinese. You know, that he, he um, had to leave behind virtually all of his possessions, his texts, his, his writing, and move uh, westward in Tibet, and then later in 1959, along with his family, had to flee to Bhutan. You know, and so that um, statement about preserving inner freedom in the middle of everything that's happening both characterized him, but it also is a powerful. Short account of what equanimity is that we're that we're getting at, and as we'll see, it's um, it's a deep wisdom that can stay balanced, and also as we'll see, responsive. Equanimity is not disconnected from action, although sometimes the maybe the word uh, equanimity we have to remember is a translation of the words from the original language and the connotations can be a little bit confusing. So it's about keeping balance, keeping one center, uh, being responsive and acting increasingly in the middle of whatever happens. And what we'll see is that the training to become more equanimous actually in large part occurs by developing more stability of mind, more mindfulness, but especially being open to explore all the ways that we lose balance. So interestingly, equanimity develops in large part by noticing how we're not equanimous and learning from that. That's certainly been the way it's been for me. A lot of my equanimity has been hanging out with fear, or anger, or being really judgmental. Basically, different ways of being unbalanced, you know, grieving, and being able to hang out with those. And one of the beauties of meditation is that we have a situation where we if we are open enough, some of those things will occur, and we can slowly, over time, study, as it were, all the ways that we lose balance. So that paradoxically, I think, is how equanimity develops. It develops by studying all the ways we're not equanimous, the ways we lose balance. I'll come back to that because that points to uh, ways we can practice, and I'll, I'll go into more detail on that. The original terms, and Heather's gonna put these terms in the chat, The original terms are really two that we translate as equanimity. One of them is uh, upekha, U-P-E-K-K-H-A. And as it says in the chat, it originally meant to look over, kind of to have a, a wide view. You know, one of my students wrote a little poem in which he had the aspiration, he said, to develop heka upeka. I'm sorry, that's a little bit of slang for our non-English speakers, uh, but it means a lot of a lot of equanimity. Heka upeka, anyway. Um, and um, in the original language, uh, upeka sometimes met, uh, meant to um, be able to look with patience, to look with understanding. So so. These are bringing in some of the qualities of equanimity, patience, understanding, and so forth. Another term is a little more difficult to pronounce and doesn't rhyme as much. Uh, It's uh, tatra majatata, tatra majatata. So again, Heather will put this in the uh, chat, and this means to stand in the middle of all of this. So again, it's the idea is we're standing in the middle of things, keeping balance, hopefully uh, preserving wisdom. A German monk uh, who, who was um, a long time in his life in Sri Lanka, named Nyanaponika Terra, said equanimity is a perfect unshakable balance of mind, rooted in insight. And The the word equanimity in English uh, comes from the Latin. There's a term uh, equa animatas, which means having an even mind. You know the word. It it brings together the word for even, and then uh, animus is the word for uh, in Latin for uh, mind or soul. You know, so we use that word. Like, uh, like we talk about uh, being animated, that's, that's related to that. In the Buddhist tradition, equanimity is the last on a lot of lists. So it's taken to be a very mature quality, actually close to the sacred, close to nirvana, when we have a, a well-developed equanimity. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. Some of you know that. We've discussed that at times here. It's the last of the qualities of the awakened heart. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's the last of a list called the paramis, which are the core qualities we develop, and so forth. And... <clears throat> It's really about holding everything with mindfulness and wisdom and caring. We sometimes say it's like um, equanimity is like a wise grandmother who has seen everything, can stay balanced with everything, but the caring and the responsiveness is still there. That might be that might be what you take away today. <laughs> Equanimity is like a wise grandmother, okay, uh, who, uh, who's right there, but she's seen everything and she doesn't get knocked around by things, right? That's, that, that gives a pretty, pretty good account. And I, I just want to say that some of the inspiration for, for, me, for me came from the life of my father, uh, Simon uh, Rothberg, had a lot of difficulties uh, in life, and yet there was a kind of balance that he had. He was uh, actually in World War II as a very young man and saw a lot of bad things, a lot of horrible things, and um, that was part of his background. Uh, He had friends who died. You know, he went through a lot. Um, He came out of uh, He was able to go to uh, college and he wanted to go to medical school. But at that time, it was the late 1940s, they had quotas on people of Jewish background to go to medical school. So my father wanted to go to medical school, but he could not go because of his ancestry, right? So that was, you know, that was something he experienced. He also um at a pretty young age developed psoriasis all over his body and for the last uh, 27 years of his life he had cancer and uh, originally he was given like a two year diagnosis but he he lasted for 27 years you know and he actually died from the side effects of some of the cancer medications 27 years later right and he, you know, on top of that, he was blind the last 35 years of his life. He went blind because he worked for the government, and there were some experiments that he was doing as a chemist that were not supervised well. And he worked with some bad chemicals, and it, um, I think it led to blindness. So all of this, you know, it's a lot, right? And yet there was... Um, you know, actually, as he went blind, I thought that his love came out more. So all of this stuff happened. And, you know, maybe we have parents or friends who've gone through a lot. But I, I associate the quality of equanimity um, some with my father. And in a way, I can um, honor him with, with the talk. So I want to name seven qualities of equanimity. And then we'll talk briefly about how to practice with equanimity. And my invitation is going to be to cultivate equanimity in the next week. And then we'll come back and have a second session on equanimity uh, a week from now. Seven qualities of equanimity. The first is balance. And I'll, I'll go through these and then talk about how to practice some of the challenges of equanimity. And then we can talk together. So... Equanimity is about having balance no matter what happens. It's not the same thing as calm or tranquility. We can have a lot happening and we can still be balanced. You know, I remember I learned this, especially once um, working in the uh, retreat kitchen. When I was, uh, after a retreat, I volunteered to work for several days in the kitchen. I remember one day we were... Uh, we were serving, I think, probably tacos and just had tons of condiments and it was a little busier than usual. And I, as working in the kitchen, was running back and forth really, really busy. But partly because I had been done a retreat right before working with this, so I was pretty balanced. And I learned that I could have a balanced mind, even though tons was happening, was really, really busy. So that's one thing. It's about balance. It's not the same thing as nothing happening, or calm, you know? We can have a lot going on. Maybe there's a kind of an inner calm, but there can be a lot going on. And so as I mentioned, we learn a lot of this balance by opening to when we're not balanced, when we're having a hard time or difficult time. Some of the qualities I mentioned, maybe fear, reactivity, uh, grief, anger, irritation, but also the way that we can be reactive by grasping, by having the mind just wanting, 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 because that's the kind of reactivity also. And so we learn, and especially in our practice, by studying all of these things, you know, by being willing, oh, fear's here, let me be with it, let me learn from it, you know. So it's really taking the stance of learning with everything. Equanimity comes out of that. The second quality is evenness. We can be with whatever comes up, increasingly being even, you know, and a lot of this comes out of our experience with the the challenging states. It permits us to be even. You know, one example that um, maybe is pretty accessible for us Think of a mountain climber. A mountain climber is really, really familiar with fear, right? But doesn't get knocked around by fear generally. The mountain climber has experienced so much fear that there's a balance and an evenness. The mountain climber might be, you know, climbing and fear arises. And the mountain climber simply says, hello, hello, fear, you know, glad you're here. And then just keeps on doing what the mountain climber is doing, right? That there's enough, again, that points to the way that really the basis for equanimity is a lot of familiarity with what knocks us around. And again, you can think of the mountain climber a really good example of equanimity with something that probably initially for the mountain climber was not easy, right? That the mountain climber had to learn to be familiar with fear. Right, that's a very good kind of uh, case study for how equanimity develops. So we can say, oh, hello, fear, or we could say, oh, hi, hi, anger, back again. Here we are, you know, or hello, back pain, or hello, hello, hello preoccupation with dinner, hello, good to meet you, welcome back, <laughs> you know. Um, there, uh, one thing, one, one kind of uh, writing that I really like, which brings out a quality of equanimity are in uh, a number of Japanese haiku. And this is from uh, Basho. And listen for the equanimity here. Remember, haiku are typically like 17 syllables, so they're brief. So you have, to, you have to be attentive. If you miss the first, you know, two seconds of a haiku, it's gone. Right? So here we go. Here's the haiku from Basho, from the 17th century. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. I think of that as an equanimity haiku. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Why is it an equanimity haiku? Because he seems to be just noting what's happening without reactivity, right? That's how I'm interpreting it. Um, another one from uh, the next century from Isa, another haiku. And both of these involve fleas, which much, must have been an issue in Japan at that time. I don't know. I haven't studied that, but this is also about fleas. But listen for the equanimity. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. I'm sorry he's talking about the house I'm sorry it's so small but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house and then another all of these are about fleas for some reason another one he he's talking about going to a beautiful place uh, they're going he's going to go travel to um a special place called matsushima now you fleas you shall see matsushima off we go so those are three equanimity haikus. So what it means is keeping balance. Something's wonderful, balance, something's difficult. There's a balance, there's an evenness. The third quality is a kind of unshakability. That no matter what happens, and these are kind of, these terms, balance, evenness, unshakability, they're related. There's, there's some overlap, but they brings out different uh, aspects of equanimity. So equanimity has an unshakable quality to it as it gets stronger. You know, no matter what happens, we kind of keep our, our center. And one of the uh, Buddhist teachings which really um, brings us out, and it's a teaching which can really be a guide to practice, it's the teaching of what are called the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly conditions. Basically, these are the winds that knock us around, that blow us around. And looking out for these is a very good way to do equanimity practice. You might even want to do this in the next week, every morning. Remember these eight winds. Look out for them. Notice when they happen and see what occurs when they're there. And the eight are gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, or having a good reputation or a bad reputation, and then praise and blame. So gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. These are the wins that can easily easily knock us around. You know, something pleasant, we grasp after it, something painful, we want to push it away, um... Fame and disrepute, or gain and loss, something good happens, wonderful, something difficult happens, oh my, and we we get preoccupied with it. Fame and disrepute, you know, I have a really good reputation, Uh, people will think that's really cool, or, uh, you know, those people are bad-mouthing me, you know. And so, these are what we look out for when we're cultivating equanimity. Last one, praise and blame, very, very powerful, right? You know, very, very powerful for all of us. And, you know, the neuroscientists say that we have that negativity bias. So we just hone in on the criticism often. You know, we can have a lot of people say good things, you know, and one person says something negative and I hone in there. I remember I was once, um, along with several other people, I was, uh, I organized a summer institute for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship had about 100 people, and we did a mid-week, we went on for a week, we did a mid-week evaluation. Evaluations came back, 95 really, really positive evaluations, five somewhat negative evaluations. All of us organizers, we we went right into the negative, right? That's called the negativity bias. That's that's why uh, praise and blame are part of these eight worldly wins. So we can look for those. We, that's a a major way to practice. We look for those, uh, you know, um, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And Heather put these into the chat if you want to, uh, you know, you want to cut and paste and um, and use them in your own practice. The fourth quality I want to name is that with equanimity, there's understanding and wisdom. A lot of equanimity comes out of our developed wisdom and understanding. It could be to, you know, really see that grasping and being reactive gets us into loops that are painful, right? That is not skillful. We might work with particular teachings. That give us guidance. We might have internalized those so much. We we can have a we can have a better sense of causes and conditions. You know. Oh yeah, I don't like what's happening. I wish it wasn't happening, but I can see the causes and conditions right for why something is happening, and that understanding can make a difference. Right. You know. We can we can see that. You know. Probably many of us. Uh, have that way of seeing things with some things, but maybe not with others, but seeing, Oh yeah, I can see how that, you know, that developed and so forth. Um, and so we have that, uh, we have a kind of inner center based on wisdom. You know, this is, uh, this is from Longfellow that gives a sense of equanimity based on understanding He says, if we, this is the poet Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Interesting, isn't it? If we could really understand uh, the people who bother us, who piss us off, right? We could see, we can see, okay, maybe if we could see enough, we could see that's coming out of their own pain. You know, like that phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Remember that? Hurt people, hurt people. That, that's, you know, that's a kind of wisdom and understanding that gives us understanding. Oh, yeah, that's, that's it's coming out of causes and conditions. It couldn't be otherwise. Again, uh, as we'll see in a moment, it doesn't mean we just let things happen. We can respond. But there's the fourth quality is the understanding and wisdom dimension. The fifth is a kind of uh, faith that we have. There's a kind of uh, faith, you know, maybe like what we saw with that speech from Dr. King, right? There's a kind of a faith that's based on understanding that I can really be with whatever's happening, that I can keep my center. I can keep my I can keep my balance no matter no matter what is occurring, right? And as I have more experience with equanimity, there's also that faith. It can be a faith in my own capacities. It can be a personal faith. It can also be a faith that, you know, keeping a center that's been developed by opening to what's been challenging is a beautiful way to live right? There can be a faith there that I'm living as I most deeply want to live. And so the fifth quality is faith. The sixth quality is having a certain level of compassion and joy and warmth. That equanimity, again, we can get confused by the word, but it's linked with the kind heart. It's linked with being... um, compassionate and responsive. We see this really, really clearly when we see how equanimity gets connected in the teaching of the four qualities of the awakened heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and they're all deeply connected. So you don't have mature equanimity unless you have the others also developed. You know, that loving kindness, compassion, and joy are really part of mature equanimity. You know, and we can see this in different ways. Um, you know that um, you know we can have a quality of joy or or warmth even in the middle of difficult circumstances. You know. You know my uh, my sister was when she was in she went to graduate school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and. Uh, to support herself during her graduate school, she was a waitress. And she said that she actually was a waitress at a restaurant once when the Dalai Lama showed up, which was a big surprise, right?? <laughs> right. How do you like to you know have the Dalai Lama just happen to show up at your place of work, right? You know, or um, I don't know, whatever you whatever you're doing. And she said that he and the people he were with were just laughing all the time. They had humor and warmth, even though, you know, the Dalai Lama's gone through, he also had to flee Tibet. He's gone through hard experiences, and he makes it a personal practice to listen to the stories of every Tibetan refugee. So he hears endless horror stories, and yet there is a lightness, a joy, a warmth that goes along with an equanimity there. Again, I think he's an example of that. And he just had his 87th birthday. Happy birthday, Dalai Lama. Right. So that's the sixth quality. And then the seventh quality is responsiveness and action. That again, we, we can see sometimes that uh, it can look to be hard to um, understand equanimity. And again, there's something about the English word that makes it sound like we're a little bit aloof. But actually, mature equanimity, as in the example of Dr. King or the Dalai Lama, you know, or we could take many other people, mature equanimity is about responsiveness and action. And it actually relates to what's called the near enemy of equanimity in the teaching of of equanimity as a heart state, which is that the near enemy or kind of the occupational hazard of equanimity is indifference. Some of you remember that, that indifference is a distortion of equanimity, but it's it has some degree of balance, but it's a distortion. And so the mature equanimity is responsive. And again, when I've uh, studied the lives of spiritually grounded activists, they generally had tremendous amounts of equanimity. And also, when I, when I wrote the book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I did a lot of interviews with, with uh, people who were either in service or social activism, who were um, also spiritually grounded. And they, a lot of them talked about equanimity and about how it was being developed. But it was something that was, you know, that went hand in hand uh, with action, really, 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 really important. So let me finish by talking about a few ways to practice with equanimity. And those were already, I think, suggested, some, by the guided meditation. You know, we want to continue to develop uh, stability of mind, greater concentration. We want to continue to cultivate our mindfulness. But we can then, in our formal meditation which is, we can really think of as a training. Our, our mindfulness practice isn't about just being calm all the time. It's about establishing stability as we looked at in our practice and then learning to be balanced and present and le- really learn from whatever comes up. So it's not about just having calmness. It's about learning to be present, mindful, and see clearly whatever is arising. That's our practice, you know? And actually, as we open, some of the stuff beneath the surface does come to the surface. Maybe some of our, I've certainly experienced in the course of my practice, sometimes fear comes up, even fear I wasn't aware of, that only is surfacing because I'm more open, or anger, or sadness, or reactivity, or grasping, or wanting, right? And I, I would get to study these And it's again, it's the hanging out with these, these um, states of mind, which are hard to be balanced with, hanging out with them, becoming more balanced with them. This is how we learn. And so an invitation for next week would be to do that in your formal meditation. Just be open, have the intention to be present with whatever's happening, even that which knocks you around a little bit, that the learning can occur there. And then we can bring the same intention into daily life, right? You know, and it might be, if you notice yourself reactive in daily life, if you can, take a pause. You know, if you're in a meeting or something, go to the bathroom, take a two or three minute break, tune in to what's happening. Or just if you can, during the course of a day, take a pause and notice what's going on. Maybe come back to it later in your meditation. You know, see what helps you stay grounded or centered. You know, so we can, we can practice with moments that we lose it, so to speak, as um, experiences to study to be more familiar with, you know, the top 10 ways that I lose it. That's how we develop equanimity. Again, I I like to say that this isn't what we put into the advertising material for Spirit Rock. Come to Spirit Rock. Come to Wednesday morning. Study all the ways you lose it. (laughs) Should we put that in the advertising, Heather? Or is that, I, I don't know, would that draw people? I don't know. You know, we put develop calm, peace, you know, mindfulness. But... In actuality, a lot of what we do when we're really learning, we study all the places, we lose it. And um, we have to stay, we have to have some balance. So it's actually very helpful to spend a lot of time, you know, with relative calm and peace. But then at a certain point, we can open up. Another way to practice, uh, both in our meditation and in daily life, is to look out for those eight worldly winds. You know, you might take them from the chat, you know, where you can actually Google, just Google eight worldly wins, you'll find them. They're translated different ways sometimes, but basically, uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, right? And set the intention in the morning in your meditation, look out for when those appear in your formal meditation, whenever you do it, and then especially let me look out for when those appear during the day. Because they're appearing a fair amount, aren't they? Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And when they appear, see if you can just be with them. We're not trying to get rid of them, we're trying to study them. So take those as starting points for being present, being mindful, because again, a lot of the learning is about knowing the the dynamics of how these work, both generally and in my particular experience, you know, and knowing my particular patterns. What triggers, you know, what triggers my reactivity? How do I relate to criticism? For most of us, getting criticism can trigger us. How many can relate to that, you know, being, being triggered? Yeah, very, very common, and so, and again, it doesn't mean that the criticism is, is totally off base, right? Might be, might have something we can learn from, right? But, uh, but again, what we're interested in is the reactivity. Yeah. Ultimately, if, if there's something valid in the criticism, we can take what's valid and work through the reactivity and come to a balanced place where we say, you know, there's something there I want to learn from that, right? That's, that's kind of a mature place. But in the short run, we study when we're reactive. So these are these are uh, a few different ways to practice, both in formal meditation and in in daily life. And again, uh, I want to encourage us to see if we're uh, called to do this um, in the next week. And so let me see what I can. Uh, um, What I can close with. Maybe I'll just come back to that. Umakatara. Equanimity is let me see if I if I can remember it. Equanimity is perfect. Unshakable balance rooted in insight. Okay, so again, the seven qualities what? Balance, evenness, unshakability, understanding, and wisdom. Uh, okay, my memory was good so far. Um, understanding and wisdom, faith, quality of warmth and then the quality of action and responsiveness. Those are the seven qualities that we're, that we're cultivating. Very, very precious. Again, when we have, as we develop equanimity, actually it's a deep quality that when it's, when it's very mature, is quite close to the sacred, quite close to that which is most precious in life. So I want to encourage our practice in this. So let's take a, a few moments now and just let this settle. See what might have been helpful for you. And see if there's any question or sharing that's emerging. We'll take about a minute or so just to sit quietly. Thanks, everyone. And maybe first, uh, Maureen, did did, uh, the talk get out at that question about whether equanimity is neutrality? Did we get at that some?
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Maureen. Any sharing questions, story of your own equanimity? Uh, Nancy, please.
1: I was reflecting as you were speaking, Donald. I was in a retreat long ago, many years ago. I had an interview with Guy Armstrong and he asked how I was doing. And I I just looked and I said, well, I'm neither happy nor sad. And I, I went back and forth like that, just kind of observing my experience. And he said, that's equanimity. And it was really, it was actually the best word I could call it is kind of a soft power.
0: Yeah, wow. It was
1: very powerful, and I realized that it would be very difficult to manipulate me when I was in that state of heka upeka. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, it, it, the kind of reflection is I don't live my life that way. Hmm. And I am more likely to experience that if I'm on a retreat yeah. or heavy concentration practice and I'm, but it's, it, I, I'm definitely blown away by the worldly winds Yeah, and I can just, I do my best to be mindful, but you know, I'd like to have more of that experience, but I.
0: Yeah. I well, thank Thanks, Nancy. Beautiful, beautiful story. You know, what occurs to me is that that may have been a very high degree of equanimity, but let's look for, the quality of equanimity, maybe not perfectly developed, but still there some, it's probably there quite a bit in your daily life, right? And so I think I would try to tune in to ways that you're relatively balanced, you know, probably quite often, maybe not, not that experience quite as profound as during the retreat. But I, that's, that's one point. And then I think just continue to look at the you know the the winds that that blow you around, so to speak. You know, and that that's the practice. But and then again, maybe in the meditation, there are moments where you can feel that kind of balance. You know, your your story led me to remember an experience I had. I was once uh, on a retreat. I was just really happy to be on retreat, and uh, I had not slept well that night. My body didn't feel good and I was really irritable, but there was something that was to- so deeply content about being there that I think it was a kind of equanimity that went totally along with my body not feeling good and emotionally being really irritable. It's interesting, right? So, so it's, uh, that, that I think was a kind of equanimity, you know, which, which um, actually had quite a bit of joy connected to it. Yeah. Thanks, Nancy. Okay. Other sharing. Again, you can do this either through raised hand. I can actually see people also if you raise your hand or through the chat if you want. Okay. Uh, uh, Seema, please. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yes, thank okay. you.
4: Okay. And thank you so much. This was such an amazing such an amazing two hours. I was only here for the last hour of it, I have to say, but equanimity. Um, When you told the, you talked about the Dalai Lama who listens to all of this, all of the refugees. I was thinking about my own job, which is certainly nowhere equivalent to his, but I am, I work at a national help desk Hmm. for people who are taking care of, um, ill family members. So I get about 200 calls a month from people who need advice, need services and all of that. And of course, we all know the state of the world and things are not getting better in this country economically for most people. And things are really hard. So I hear really difficult stories every single day. Um, Really, really difficult. And yesterday, a woman left me a message say about my outgoing message to people, in which I said, It'll take me a couple of weeks to get back to you. Mm. So please don't be upset if I don't call you Rack right, right away. And she was criticized when she left a message for me, she criticized my message. Mm. How dare you say that? You're you're removing hope from people. It's very unprofessional. Mm. So here I am, I do this all the time, and I had to shut my desk down for a few minutes and just started going, oh, how, she, how dare she say that? Does she have any idea what I'm dealing with? Well, yeah. in fact, I have no idea what she's dealing with. And it's probably a lot more difficult than what I am. But mm. my response to being criticized was like,
2: Phew. right.
4: And I was able to restore myself to some sense of calm yeah. after a while. But I have to be really careful because I've had this response my whole life. I mean, I grew up in a pretty traumatic situation,
3: yeah. and I'm
4: dealing with post-traumatic stress, and I get triggered easily. Not yeah. by my clients, fortunately, but by criticism, for sure. Yeah.
3: yeah.
4: And so to come in and hear both the, what you were talking about with the Dalai Lama, who I dare not compare myself to, but also with criticism and how we respond to that, Yeah. Um, it's all very helpful. It just I just wrote everything down as much as I could. It's just yeah. so helpful because... I don't want to be necessarily. I don't want to be detached, and I. I just equanimity is perfect to describe what it is I'm. I'm trying to achieve, and how yeah. hard it is to work for it's
0: it. It's hard, yeah.
4: And which is, like how, which is why I keep coming back to Sangha. Why well, I'm a member of Sangha, and I keep coming back week after week. And it's enabled me. The last thing is, it's enabled me for once to notice and to maybe hopefully give up for a few minutes how judgmental I am about my toward myself about yeah. how hard I've worked and how it doesn't seem to be helping. But of course it's helping. It's such a process, a yeah. long process of forgiving myself for all the criticism that I get or imagine I'm getting. Um,
0: yeah.
4: yeah. Learning to be less reactive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Seema. There's a, there's a lot there. And um, yeah. yeah, you're really, you're doing the equanimity practice, you know, taking, you know, taking the, the criticism as practice. And, and again, yeah, it's, um, you know, the equanimity practice can be, um, you know, uh, can be deep and connect with practice on many levels, you know, such as that, you know, I may, I may get, uh, you know, I can work with the criticism, but like in your example, well, maybe the fact that I'm triggered by criticism goes back to some of my childhood experience right and and so yeah and it's not just about being mindful maybe i have to do healing work in relation to trauma or what came up in childhood so it's it's a it can be a lot right it's not simply be mindful of criticism and you know did that one check right right, <laughs> right? It, it, and again,
4: also thank you so much for showing the film the video of dr king i just it breaks my heart every time I see those videos or think about yeah. him. I was alive and going to marches and doing that work yeah. back then. And it just, ooh. so thank one, you.
0: one of the benefits of Zoom, it'd be hard, much harder to do if we were in person. Oh, well, that's yes. possible. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Simo.
1: And Donald, I wanted to share that um, a comment in the chat. Okay. Um that I that I had sent to you. Would you like me to share it?
0: Uh sure. If was it a, a question or reflection or do you think, uh, think yes. it be I don't know what it is. Would it be good to share?
1: Yes. Yes. Um so um so thank you for a wonderful session and sharing about your father's life. Oh. As a warm and wonderful grandma, I grapple with my hot fear and work with cooling my hot brain. Thank yeah. you. Please read this and comment.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, let me I mean, you send the chat to me in email. I mean, that's nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, equanimity is so powerful. And we, we all, again, we all have our own versions of how we work with this. Like in that comment, Seema's comment, really Nancy's also, you know, it can, you know, our own way of developing equanimity is going to be somewhat personal, you know. But, but the core of it's going to be more or less a lot of the areas that I named